Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Today's episode is about what you need to know about cash flow. And I have the most appropriate guest for that subject. His name is Frank Gallinelli. He's the author of about two or three books, which can be found at Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, and a few other places. And, you know, real estate investing is a numbers game. And the only way to win at this game is to understand the numbers. So it's important to know how to evaluate property, how to understand the cash flow, the rates of return, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't need to be a rocket scientist. And on today's episode, we do get into some deep conversation, things that are maybe initially hard to understand or conceptualize. But, you know, this podcast is on demand. You could listen to it two or three times, and you can also educate yourself through books and, and various other resources that are available out there. But this is something that you need to understand, at least at a high level, if not be an expert at it, but at least understand it at a conceptual level so you know what cash flow, cash on cash return is, your net operating income. These are all acronyms and part of the vocabulary, but the only way to elevate yourself from being a novice or a newbie investor to a more sophisticated investor is to really grasp the vocabulary so you know what these terms mean and how you can use them and calculate them. So let's jump in here in one moment and talk to Frank Gallinelli. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. All right. It's my pleasure to welcome Frank Gallinelli to the show. Frank is the author of the best-selling book, What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow, now in its third edition. As well, he's written other books and numerous articles on real estate investing and finance. He's a graduate of Yale University, and he serves as adjunct assistant professor of real estate development at Columbia University. Frank has been involved in real estate for more than 40 years, and he's the founder and president of Real Data, a real estate software firm that has provided analysis and presentation tools for investors and developers since 1982. Frank, welcome to the show. Marco, it's a delight being with you today. Hey, it's great having you on the show, and I'm actually pretty excited to have you because I have to tell you that there is about three or four books that I've read virtually cover to cover and almost in one pass, I remember reading Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad on a train ride from Rome, Italy to Florence, Italy, and I couldn't put the damn thing down. And then there was uh, Jim Rickard's Currency Wars that I read on an airplane ride from Orange County, California to Detroit, Michigan. And then there's your book, What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow. And when I started reading that, I thought this is one of the most amazing books to educate me about real estate investing and why it makes sense. So I want to just say thank you for the great book, and I want to recommend that everybody pick up a copy. Well, thank you, Marco. Yeah. yeah but we said there's no accounting for taste. When I wrote this book, I had really no intentions of writing a book. McGraw-Hill called me up one day and said, would you do that? I gave him a hard time. Four months later, I gave him a manuscript. <laughs> we were talking about that just briefly before the show, that the ignorance on the phone call kind of paid off for you. 
really did because I had no idea of how grateful I should be when a major publisher, you know, somebody calls from the, the 85th floor office or whatever on the, on the 6th Avenue in New York and says, would you like to write a book? And I said, yeah, something along the lines of, yeah, sure, whatever you say. So they, uh, they said, well, we're going to send you a copy of something that I, that we published before. And I, uh, I think we want something like that. So they, they sent me this book, which I took a look at and I called the editor back and, Continuing my attitude of of being uh, uncooperative and disdainful, I said to the guy, "You know, I've uh, I've been dealing with the real estate investors for decades now, thousands if not tens of thousands of them. And I think I can name three people who could understand the book you just sent me. And by the way, I'm not one of them. So, <laughs> you know, I think I'm going to write a book for you know just a, a regular educated individual who simply doesn't happen to know anything about this subject area, and I'll explain it to them in plain English if I can. And I." essentially dashed it off and uh, as my mother used to say some people have more luck than brains and apparently i was i was living proof it's a great book i Thank highly you. highly recommend it actually it's one of my top 10 recommended books that i've got on my blog so if you go to our website you'll see that there's uh, my favorite top 10 books for real estate investing and that's certainly one of them but that book was really successful and then you followed it up with another book insider secrets to financing your real estate investments yeah, that's uh, my editor then called up and said, you're only as good as your last book, so you better write another one. That one was not quite as successful. It was more geared toward, I think, some of the interests of the times in terms of just closing deals. Uh, the title may have been uh, somewhat off-putting. You know, Insider Secrets now, I think, is, is probably not the best way to try to introduce a, a topic. It sounds a little bit too much like snake oil. But yeah. uh, nonetheless, it is it is also uh, managed to uh, to survive the test of time, and it's still out there after a decade. Well, they're both great books. I have them sitting on my desk right now. I'm looking at them. And uh, I, I, like I said before, I keep plugging these books, but it's only because I think they are so great. Well, thank you. Well, let's begin with you. How did you get into real estate? Tell us about how you got involved with real estate investing. Well, it's kind of an unusual story. I think probably, you know, living proof of the theory of unintended consequences. Back uh, more than 40 years ago, maybe 45, 48 years ago, my wife and I were both teachers. In fact, she was department head in a high school. And back then, teachers didn't make an awful lot of money, but we managed to get along. But then when we were having our first child, we discovered something that we hadn't planned on, and that is that teachers don't get anything called maternity leave back in that day. So when my wife had to leave to have our first child, we suddenly were a one-income family because going on leave, if you will, to have a baby was tantamount to resigning. So uh, I need to figure out, well, what am I going to do now to replace that lost income? I'd always been interested in real estate, and I was able to to convince a, a startup real estate company to take me on as a, as a salesman, even though I was inexperienced as a part-time salesman, so I could keep both jobs. That's how I got into the real estate business you know, initially. And then just a few years later, I guess I made a good impression on someone in another company in a, in a transaction we were doing because the owner of that company called to invite me to become sales manager, first in residential and, and then in commercial. And so one thing led to the, to the next. Uh, and fortunately, the owner of that company was also one of the, the leading lights in terms of of investment analysis and uh, one of the originators, I believe, of the CCIM program for realtors, the commercial investment yep. program. So that's where I learned about investing and learned about investment analysis. 
and the uh, the rest, as they say, uh, uh, may be history. Uh, I went on from doing that to obviously to investing in property for myself, and then yet another unintended consequence. I'm analyzing a property uh, that we're looking to acquire for a family business that I that I had also gotten uh, involved in, and. Uh, I was playing around with this newfangled device, uh, this is around 1980 or thereabouts, something that no one had ever seen before, something called a personal computer. <laughs> and uh, it's one of these things where you know, it weighed a little bit more than my car did, and it had these floppy disks that looked like uh, something that you might order from Domino's. But uh, I used an early version of a spreadsheet program to try to duplicate the kind of financial analysis, the cash flow plan, the the resale plan, and so on, that we had used to do in the real estate company that I worked for. And I tried to duplicate that with a spreadsheet, and thus was born a, a software company, Real Data. And we've been doing that now for 30-some-odd years. I think this is our, I think this month makes our 34th anniversary of selling investment analysis software for personal computers. Congratulations. Thank you. You seem to be at the right place at the right time, <laughs> which is good for you. So let's kind of dive into analysis because that's one of the first things you actually talk about in your book. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me and my listeners know that I, I like to take a top-down approach when I analyze a property. The property itself is kind of the last thing I look at, if you will. Yeah. I always start with the macro picture and look at the market. And then I start to look at neighborhood options. And then I start looking at the property along with the team of people involved. So all that is what I refer to as a top-down approach. A lot of people, I think, make the mistake of seeing the property, getting mesmerized by the numbers on a property, and they don't realize, well, you can't move that property. It's attached to a market. So, So let's take your spin on this. How do you begin your analysis of rental properties? Well, Marco, you just nailed it. I want to tell you that uh, one of the things that I say both in my books and in my and in my lectures for my grad students is that the place you start is with your due diligence and that the mistake that most novice investors make, at least in my experience, is to think about their due diligence only in regard to the property that they're looking at. But as I again, as I tell my students, properties don't live in a vacuum. They are attached to a particular market. And so where you really begin your due diligence is by investigating that market. What are the kind of the global considerations? What is the general economy in that market? Are new employers moving in? Are old employers moving out? Is there a great deal of vacancy or is there a lack of vacancy, a great deal of demand that can't be filled? Understand what's going on in the marketplace where you are considering buying a piece of property. The way I used to put it uh, when teaching is that you really want to know where the cracks in the sidewalk are. When you understand your market at that granular a level, then you're ready to go ahead and actually look at and consider pieces of property. But until you do that, until you know what the rental rates are, or you know what the uh, if you're doing dealing with commercial property, what the cap rates are in that area, what the vacancy rates are, and so on. Until you have that understanding of really what's going on in the marketplace, what's going on with property taxes? Are they building new schools and going to be raising your taxes soon? Until you understand that macro view of the community in which your property is going to live, not until you've done that are you really in a position now to make any sense out of individual properties. Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about are the drivers that are driving the market. 
the jobs, the migration, the companies that are coming in or moving out. You know, there's a saying in real estate, all real estate is local, which is very, very true. But you can take that saying one step further and say that all real estate is hyper local because it gets down to quite literally the neighborhood level. Oh, even even more than that, uh, you know, I've in a place where, where I used to live and buy and sell property on one side of the street, the rents were probably 20 percent higher than on the other side of the street, literally on a you know, left to right basis like that. You needed to know your market that precisely in order not to get burned. So you need to become a detective and, you know, (laughs) it's essentially what you're doing here. So uh, do you have any advice or tips on how to gather, you know, that necessary information and data so you can make an educated decision? Well, you need to get yourself involved in that community, obviously. This is one of the reasons why, especially with novice investors, I tell them to kind of avoid this idea of chasing a hot market wherever it may be. I can recall giving a lecture once out in California. I think it might have been two real estate bubbles ago. That's how you you measure time, of course, with (laughs) the real estate business. And nobody really wanted to ask me any questions about the material that I was talking about. They only wanted to ask me if I knew, I was in California at the time, did I know where the hottest neighborhoods in Las Vegas were? And I said, yeah, I don't know Las Vegas. I wouldn't know Las Vegas if you dropped me in there, you know, on the on a tether from a helicopter. If you don't know the area intimately, it's not really the wisest thing to do to be at a beginning investor trying to buy in that area. So when you're kind of building up that market familiarity, I think you start off with a place with which you're familiar, a place that you know, so that when something changes, your antenna pick that up. Obviously, there's other ways that you can acquire information. Just keeping on top of local news events, what's happening in the school system, what's happening in community events. Talking to realtors who know what's going on because they you know, deal with, with people coming and going all the time. Your business community, your local business associations. All of this is part of the homework that you have to do, I think, to be a successful investor. Yeah. And, and one important team member, and I talk about team all the time, you know, one of the people on your team is your property manager and having a good relationship with your property manager is very important because they can feed you a lot of the market information that is going on in the neighborhoods that you're investing in, such as vacancy rates, time to lease and whatnot. Plus the internet today has made access to information incredibly easy. So you can pull information up from so many different websites, you know, citydata.com, neighborhoodscout.com. I mean, there's just a slew of information. Zillow's got more and more information that they're plugging into their website. So it's not that difficult to start gathering information and become that property detective that you need to be. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And my only takeaway in regards to some of the online information, it's almost like the stock market. You know, by the time it hits general public information, it's already old news. So if you can keep your ear to the ground and, as you say, talk to your property manager and get acquainted with uh, community leaders, you'll very often be able to get the jump on some of this information. Yeah. One nice thing about real estate as an asset or an asset class, if you want to call it that, is that unlike paper assets and the stock market, things in real estate tend to move very slowly, relatively speaking. So if there are negative population trends or positive population trends or new developments coming in, these things take time to unfold. It can take months and sometimes years for new developments to be approved and built and whatever else. So you can maybe get a predictor or a forecast of what's to come, whether it's positive or negative. So 
that's one thing I really like about real estate. It's, it's a very slow asset. You're quite right about that. And, and you raised a good point too. If you keep your uh, antennas tuned to, uh, for example, zoning appeals or requests for permits to build something, that will give you a lot of good information as to, as to what might be going on in a community and what direction that community is headed. If you find that more and more developers are looking to do things in a particular section of the community, well, that gives you some heads up, I believe, that uh, they see promise there. They're willing to commit their funds there. So keep an eye on what's going on. Yeah, it's not a hard thing to do. And it doesn't take a lot of time either. Just as a quick side note, I thought it was pretty funny. I don't remember the exact website address. I'll have to look that up. But there's actually a website that was started back in early 2000s. They kept track of all the companies moving out of the state of California and moving to other states, particularly to Texas. And I mean, you can find virtually every company under the sun listed on this website. But it was just funny to see companies like Toyota and and you name it just moving out of state. And so when you see those trends, you know, where you have companies that employ thousands or tens of thousands of people and they're moving to Dallas, Texas or wherever they may be going. Well, well, that's an indicator. You know, maybe you should start looking at these markets and doing more investigation, more detective work and find out, okay, what other drivers are going on here? And that's how you start to identify these markets that make sense. And then you work your way down. So there's just tons of information out there. It's not there should be no excuse for an investor not to be able to do the work that they need to do to find the markets that make sense and start investing there. That's right. Absolutely. So this is about numbers, you know, it's about cash flow. So let's start talking about that. You refer to something called the four basic returns. And I I think for a lot of our listeners, they understand this, but why don't you just kind of take a minute and just bullet point that stuff? Yeah. The reason I discussed that uh, in my book and I even covered in my, my Columbia grad school lectures, it has to do with the whole concept of the income stream. And this is what I find is one of the most difficult aspects of real estate investing for people to apprehend, to really wrap their brains around the notion that it's not so much the physical asset that you're concerned about, not so much the physical asset that you're buying, as it is the income stream from that asset that you're buying. And to try to make this a little bit more digestible, if you will, I broke that income stream down into four components. First of those is cash flow. How much money comes in minus how much money goes out, well, what's left over is your cash flow. If your property doesn't have a positive cash flow, you're not going to be happy with it for a whole long time. The second element in that income stream is growth in value. And I used to call that phenomenon appreciation. You know, I stopped doing that because I stopped using that term because it is too closely associated with the type of change in value that occurs in the single-family personal residence market, where a rising tide lifts all boats so that external economic forces are what drive the change in value of a particular piece of property. The kind of change in value that I'm thinking of and that I'm talking about is really the change in value that is a function of the income stream, of how much cash the property can generate. Another component to that income stream is the amortization of the loan, the the reduction of debt. Most real estate is acquired through financing. So you've got a debt on the property and it needs to be paid. And to the extent that that is being paid off with funds that are given to you as part of your revenue stream, funds from your tenants, essentially 
your tenants then are reducing your debt. And so that's part of your income stream. Your, your reduction of debt is part of the entire income stream. And the last one, which unfortunately becomes, I think, less and less of an issue as the tax code gets to be less and less business and investor friendly, but the last of these is tax shelter. To the extent that it's possible, some of the income, some of the revenue, the net revenue from your property can be sheltered, at least for a time, through depreciation so that you will end up, hopefully, paying taxes on a little bit less of the money, a little bit less than all of the money that you brought in. So those are kind of the the ways I've tried to slice and dice the income stream. The main purpose of that slicing and dicing being to try to make that notion of income stream being a little bit more approachable. That is really the income stream that you're looking to buy. When you mentioned income stream, the first thing that crossed my mind was cash flow naturally, because it just Mm -hmm. sounds like what you're talking about is cash flow. But you're you're really talking about all the major benefits of owning income producing real estate, which is more than just cash flow. It's what you're referring to as value. What a lot of people think of is appreciation, but that value can be built in more than one way. Over time, properties typically go up in value, but then there's also the ability to build in more equity by fixing up a property that was distressed and now you're forcing appreciation. So you're just building more value. And then I know you're really big on multi-unit properties and apartments and commercial properties. I mean, that's that's a big thing on what you teach and, and what you talk about. But for our listeners' sake, with commercial property, the way to increase value, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but you increase the net operating income. If you increase the net operating income, then you increase the value of that property because it's valued based on that income, not based on comparable sales in the neighborhood. True. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, once quite some long time ago, a friend of mine and I bought a a small income property. I think it was four units. And the previous owner had been renting it out for many, many, many years. And it kind of lost touch with the marketplace. So after we bought that property, we had a nice chat with each of the tenants and say we were very happy for them that they'd been able to live here at rents that were about two decades out of date. But unfortunately, now as the new owners, we couldn't afford that luxury anymore. So that as of the next lease renewal, the rents were going to go to market rents. As you might expect, that meant that we were also having to look for four brand new tenants when those leases came up. But that wasn't the biggest issue. The biggest issue was the fact that we were then able, quite literally, to double the rents because that's how far below market they were. And within just a couple of years, we sold the property for double what we paid for it. And it was simply a function of the income stream. We doubled the income stream. And that's what doubled the value. It wasn't a matter that houses or homes in that neighborhood had doubled in value in those three or four years that we owned the property. It was the fact that we had doubled the income stream so that a new investor coming in would buy it based on the kind of revenue that it was producing. Did you say that was a fourplex? Yes. Okay. So I want to make sure our listeners are not confused here. It has always been my understanding, and and I think if you talk to any real estate professional, or investor, you know, they're going to tell you that if you're financing a one to four unit property, that the appraisal and the lender will base everything based on comparable sales. If you are into the commercial space, which is larger than four units, then the appraisal method is a little different. It's based on the income approach instead of the comparable sales approach. 
what you're telling me is that you revalue this property based on income, not based on comparable sales. Well, I was still in the sales, the real estate sales business back then. This goes back quite a few years. And I was an excellent salesperson, Marco. And I was able to convince the new buyer that this was the right way to look at it. You're, you're, <laughs> okay. You're, you're quite correct that the typical appraiser, the typical lender will look at a four unit property and base its value on comparable sales. But I really wasn't trying so much to justify the increase in value to this new buyer as I was simply its value. And it made sense the price we were selling it, it made sense at that price given the income stream. So this person was buying it as an investment mm -hmm. and it made sense to them. And it, it fortunately appraised out as well. Okay. Well, yeah, I was thinking about the appraisal. That, that's really the contingency there. As long as it appraises, the buyer's happy with it, then yep. you've got a deal. Interesting. You know, when we talk about cash flow, and, and people will see this in your book because the subtitle is and 36 other key financial measures. So you, you talk about all kinds of things in here, like NOI, net operating income, you know, your gross rent multiplier, GRM. The list goes on and on, and we live and swim in this world of acronyms. And what we're talking about is vocabulary. Why do you feel the vocabulary of real estate investing is so important? I really do. I, you're, you're exactly right that I feel strongly about the importance of using vocabulary correctly. And it's not just a pedantic kind of interest in, you know, in using the, the right terminology. It's the fact that every business, every profession, if, if you will, has its secret handshakes, it's a very specific kind of terminology. And if you don't use that terminology correctly, well, there are a number of possible, again, unintended consequences that may derive from that. One of those is that as you deal with others who are professional in this industry, if you misuse the standard terminology, you paint yourself as an amateur. And when you do that, you put yourself at a disadvantage. If you use the terminology incorrectly, or as I've also seen very often, if you simply invent terminology that does not currently exist in nature, what you're really saying to somebody else is that I don't really know what I'm talking about. And maybe I'm a good person to take advantage of since I don't know what I'm talking about. Another reason to use terminology correctly is because if you don't understand what the terms mean and you don't apply them the way they are applied generally in the industry, then you may end up coming to an inaccurate or inappropriate conclusion. The most common example of this has to do with net operating income. Now, once again, this is primarily an issue that concerns itself with properties that are bought and sold for their ability to produce income, things that are more than four units. But if you don't have the correct definition of net operating income kind of burned into your cerebral cortex so that you never think of it in any other way, you may come up with a wrong number to use to try to come up with the current valuation as an appraiser would. That net operating income relies very heavily on what you may define properly as being an operating expense or not an operating expense. Now, for example, mortgage interest is not an operating expense. Depreciation is not an operating expense. If you were to take the business equivalent of this so-called annual property operating data form that I talk a lot about in my book, which is like a profit and loss statement. If you were to take the business version of a profit and loss statement, you might find items on there such as interest costs that would be normally and appropriately there. 
But on a real estate P&L, on this APOD, you don't have it there because you only include expenses that are necessary for the operation of the property. And the reason that's important is because then that gets you to the industry standard definition of net operating income, the industry standard calculation of that number, which in turn is what an appraiser will use when they apply a cap rate and come up with a current market value for that property. So if you get the definitions scrambled up or if you get them to be imprecise, you at the very least, if you're lucky, simply make yourself look bad. But if you're not having a a really good day, you can also come up with a totally erroneous set of numbers on which you might be basing the value of the property. Whichever one of these things happens, it's not good news. I think as a real estate investor, what's really important about that is to be able to compare apples to apples. So if you're looking at one particular property and comparing it to another option, another property that you're looking to purchase, you can see which one is the better deal in terms of cash flow. And then you calculate your metrics off of that. And so you can see which one produces a better cash on cash return or whatever it may be. So it's the lowest common denominator. It allows you to compare apples to apples. Yeah, that's right. And and, uh, again, when I talk, for example, on on some of those discussion groups with novice investors, very often one person is talking about one set of figures, one collection of, of information in terms of trying to come up with financial analysis of a property. Another person is using different items in their operating expenses, things that don't belong there, the entire mortgage payment. So they're mixing up, they're confusing cash flow with net operating income. So you're right, they're losing that commonality And that commonality is essential, really, for being able to talk intelligently to other parties in a transaction, to brokers who are helping you try to conclude a transaction, to lenders who are presumably going to finance the transaction. If you don't stick all with you speaking the same language, which is what vocabulary is, then there's no communication. And it's the lack of communication. Here's something that I actually used up almost half a lecture in my graduate school class about is the notion of clarity. I've seen more deals go south because of individuals' inability simply to convey what it is that they're thinking and what it is that they're figuring out to the other parties in a transaction. Uh-huh. They simply don't have, they don't have a, an understanding of the importance, the essential nature of clarity communicating with other people. I, being of a certain vintage, the image that always comes to mind is uh, Cool Hand Luke with the uh, Paul Newman looking at the the prison warden there who wears the mirrored sunglasses. You can never see his eyes in the movie. And he says, what we have here, I think, is a failure to communicate. <laughs> and that's what happens that kills so many deals. They are unable, the parties are unable to communicate effectively, partly because you have individuals who are using, you know, invented vocabulary or simply not conveying the information in a way that is common to the industry so that other people can understand it. Yeah. Yes, I completely agree. So I want to talk about metrics in a minute, but I think a good bridge here between vocabulary and getting into those metrics is a concept that I find very interesting and fascinating. And I know a lot of people initially have a hard time wrapping their mind around And that is the time value of money. And I know when I say that, I can tell that there's probably some people that are listening to this and their eyes are glazing over. What what do you mean time value of money? So I think you do a brilliant job in explaining this. 
And it's easier to conceptualize and imagine in your mind than it is to put into words. And I'm not even going to try. So <laughs> do us the favor, explain the time value of money. And then more importantly, tell us why it's important to us as real estate investors. Well, with the buildup like that, you really put me on the spot now, oh, didn't I'm you? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> time value of money is essential to all investing, not just real estate investing. In fact, it's essential to the understanding of the uses of money in any context. And really, the concept is not terribly difficult. Most people have an understanding of one phase of time value of money, and that's interest compounding. I think most people, even if they have no familiarity with investing or how money works in great detail, will understand the fact that if you put money in an account where interest is compounded, that you earn interest on interest, that it grows essentially in a geometric way. The time value of money that we care about as investors, though, it's kind of like looking through the other end of the telescope. Instead of looking through the end where things get bigger as you look at them, as with compounding, you look through the, the wrong end of the telescope and see that they're off in the distance, that they really are smaller. And what I mean by that is that we have to understand that money that we have to wait for, money that we can't have today, but that we have to expect at some point in the future is less valuable than money we can have right now. I teach this, uh, or I, I tell my students that this is the Janis Joplin School of Economics. Get it while you can. The idea being that if you have money in your hand today, you have it available to you to use, and therefore you can make more money with it. If you have to wait five years, 10 years, whatever number of years to receive those same number of dollars that you might otherwise have had in your hand today, you've lost the opportunity to earn with it. So let's say $100 that I have in my hand today is worth $100 to me. But if I have to wait five years to get that $100, then really I ask myself, well, how many dollars in hand today might I reasonably expect to grow to be $100 five years from today? Well, it might only be $60. So that means that an investment that I have to wait for for five years, an investment that will pay me $100, really isn't worth $100 to me. It's only worth $60. Where we as real estate investors have to pay a special attention to this is in regard to the fact that we experience multiple cash flows as we own a property. We buy a property today and we have a cash flow, hopefully we have a cash flow in the first year and we have another cash flow in the second year and we have a third cash flow in the third year and so on and so forth until we get to the point where, as with all good investments, we liquidate it and we have not just a cash flow from operating it but also a cash flow from that liquidation. So now what we're concerned about is how do the dollar amounts of all these different cash flows and the timing of all these different cash flows interact, interplay? And it's when we look at that that we begin to appreciate the difference among different investment opportunities. We may get in total the same number of dollars from property A and from property B and from property C. 
but it's the timing of receiving those dollars, the time value of the money that differentiates the quality of the investment from property A, property B, and property C. That's a lot to wrap your mind around. And I think people will need to listen to what you just described two or three times to completely <laughs> get it. Well, I mean, of course, they could also do their own research or you know, buy your book and read your chapter on that. But when I hear time value of money and listening to what you just said, I think there's two ways to look at it, at least from where I sit. This is my perspective on things. You're talking about two things in, in a very general sense. One is opportunity cost or lost opportunity costs. And number two is the effect of inflation on money, because that $100 you're talking about today is not going to be worth $100 a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think these are the two lenses that I, at least, I look at what you're saying through. Yeah, you're quite right. I think almost the inflation is right is built right into the opportunity cost issue. But you're right that no matter how, you know, whether you're looking through one lens or two, I think the issue is that you, you have to recognize that waiting to obtain a return means that return gets less valuable the farther and farther it goes out into time because of the lost opportunity to, to, to make money with that return. And as you say, because of the potentially changing value of the dollar. So here's my off-the-cuff example. You're looking at two different properties, same purchase price, same cash flow today. But based on your research or your information, that first property 10 years from now might be worth more than that second property for whatever factors or variables that are in play here. So it may make sense to actually go with the first property worth more in 10 years from now than the second property based on what you know. And actually, here's my twist on that on this example. You may actually have more cash flow today on that second property that you estimate to be worth less 10 years from now than the first property where you're going to make less today, but more in 10 years when you sell it. Did that make sense? <laughs> I think it did. Okay. As we get into the, this whole topic, it, the opportunities for convolution are almost unlimited. And I'll, I'll, I'll add even one, one more for you. Sometimes the change in cash flow is not simply a straight line going up from one in, in every property. You might have a property, for example, where you know that a couple of years down the road, you're going to have to put a new roof on, as opposed to a second property where you know you don't have to do that. So if you look at your real anticipated cash flow from these two properties over a period of time, you may see that one goes kind of up in a straight line, one goes up, then dips down, then goes up again. Mm -hmm. So that the timing of when these things occur can affect the overall return when you look at this time value of money. The longer you can put off, for example, that major capital expenditure to fix the roof and whatnot, effectively, the less expensive it makes that uh, capital cost to you. So it can affect your overall return. This is why I tell people, kind of getting away from the minutia of the deal, it's why I tell people that you really have to do what I call a pro forma analysis, a projection not just of how the property is operating today, but how you think you're going to be spending or receiving money over the next several years, right up to a reasonable potential resale date. Because it's only when you look at the property over a period of time like that, 
and you try to make some best case, worst case, and in the middle sort of projections that you really get a sense for how well or not so well this property might perform compared to other investments. Mm-hmm. And I think if you don't try to take that forward-looking approach, then I think you're missing an opportunity to really understand how the property will play out. And I've had some folks say to me, well, you know, I only want to look at how the property is performing today because trying to do any kind of you know anticipation of how I might either receive or spend money on this property in the future. Well, that's just, you know, like a crystal ball. It's like trying to predict the future. Uh I can understand that point of view, but at the same time, if you don't do those kinds of projections into the future, then in reality, my feeling is you're still saying, I can predict the future. And I think it's going to look pretty much just like the present because I'm not going to base it on anything other than how the property is, is operating just today in the current year. When an appraiser does an appraisal on a property, they pretty much look at just the present because they're looking to come up with a current market value. Our role as investors, though, if we're going to hold a property for an extended period of time, then we're interested in in more than just how does it look in the present. We're interested in how do we think it's going to perform for us if we hold it for an extended period of time. Right. Your example was far better than mine, but like I said... (laughs) It's one of those things where it might be easy to conceptualize in your mind, but to actually put it into words and sometimes even to conceptualize it is a difficult thing, but it's something you learn, you know, with some experience and just educating yourself. Well, here, here's what I want to do, Frank. I want to kind of wind things down here by talking about metrics, not all metrics, because, you know, there's just many of them, but I want to ask you, you know, what metrics you find most useful when you're evaluating a property. And before you answer the question, I want to tell you one of the reasons why I want to ask you this question. A lot of investors seem to be focused in on cap rate, and I don't like the cap rate all that much. To me, it's it's overly simplistic, and you may disagree, but that's my opinion. I prefer looking at cash on cash return and the total return on investment. But I'd like your comments and and what you think about metrics and what you find most useful. Uh, yeah, there's as you mentioned from the title of my book, there's there's no limit to the number of metrics we could be talking about. But I think the first one that I always suggest that people take a look at is very simplistic, and that's just plain cash flow. Can you anticipate not just in the current year, but in years going forward, having a positive cash flow? Because there's nothing that's less appealing about a property, then you're having to support the property rather than the property supporting you. So unless you have a reasonable anticipation of a positive cash flow, I don't think you want to to spend a whole lot more time digging any, any deeper. Now, when you're looking at cash flow, as in my example of just a moment ago, you want to be thinking also about whether or not you might have to be doing some kind of major improvement or renovations of the property whether it's a new roof, an HVAC system, whatever it might be at some point in the future, because that's going to have a significant impact on your cash flow and may in fact push you well into a negative cash flow. If you can see that happening at some point in the future, the way you need to look at it is to say, I really need to put reserves away ahead of time. And that may mean I need to have more money up front that I just salt away so that three, four years from now, I can replace that HVAC system or replace that roof. So I think at a, a reasonable projection of your current and ongoing cash flows is definitely a place you need to start. 
My second choice in terms of a metric goes from the very simple to the much more complicated, and that's internal rate of return. That's another one of those metrics that I think a lot of people have a very hard time wrapping their mind around because you're bringing in the time value of money. That's right. And it is, it, it's actually less complicated than most people think it is. And I hope in my book and in my courses that I've tried to make it a little bit more obvious as to what it really means. But to kind of boil it down to why it matters is that internal rate of return is the one metric that takes into account both the timing and the magnitude of cash flows and boils them down into a single number, into a single metric. Okay, So that, as I said earlier when we were talking about time value of money, it's not just the number of dollars that you get out of a property, but when those dollars arrive in your pocket. So that sooner is better, more is better, more sooner is best. So that if you can judge in comparing two or three different properties you might be considering, if you can judge how you think those cash flows will occur and when they will occur, the internal rate of return metric will give you a better handle on the overall rate of return for that property. A secondary benefit to a metric like this is if you do what we do in our investment analysis software, which is to test a potential sale of the property every year during our projected holding period and see what would the IRR be if I held it for one year? What would it be if I held it for two years, for five years, for seven years, and so on? It's not uncommon to see that you'll reach a peak in terms of rate of return after a given holding period. And after that peak, then the rate of return may drop down. So there's a bit of information that you might be able to derive from something like this. I use an example in, one, in my grad class that uh, really, I think the students have a hard time understanding when they see just the numbers until we start talking about it. It's, a, it's an example where a, a particular property does spectacularly well in increasing its revenue stream, its income stream in the first year, as opposed to a second property that doesn't make that kind of bonanza first year success but after that has ongoing a greater rate of increase each year than the Bonanza success property did. The thing that's odd is that the, at least to the, to the students when they look at this, is the one, the property that has this, this tremendous success the first year has a tremendous internal rate of return after one year, but the internal rate of return keeps on dropping the longer you hold the property which illustrates the point that I'm trying to bring out here, that since we were so successful so early, what IRR is telling us when we look at it over a period of time is that maybe we need to sell this property because every year's subsequent performance just dilutes the overall performance. So are you suggesting that a internal rate of return that starts to plateau may suggest that it's time to sell that property or, or do a tax-free 1031 exchange into other properties where you can get back to that early part of that IRR curve? Yeah, exactly. That as the IRR starts to decline over time, it's showing that those future years are now diluting your okay. overall return on your investment. And if that's the case, maybe it's time to take the money out of that investment and to start over sure. with something else. 
Okay. Absolutely. So yeah. it's just, it's just opportunity costs. Where's the best use of your, your yeah. cash? Where's the best use of your equity? And we get, you know, it's very easy to become complacent with a property saying, okay, I have a positive cash flow. Everything's good. I'm paying my bills. I'll continue to do more of the same. But when you look at it in, in this way, it can tell you that uh, you could perhaps do better. Very good point. Well, what, what you just described here in the last two minutes ties very well with an episode I just recorded yesterday on 1031 exchanges. So, uh, I mean, it dovetails right into the 1031 exchange and why you would use it. And, um, you know, those things go hand in hand. So, you know, it's just one more thing that, you know, real estate investors need to continually educate themselves. They need to learn about cash flow. They need to learn about 1031 exchanges. They need to learn about property management. They need to learn about a lot of things, but you don't need to learn everything about everything because that'll never happen. But if you know enough, you can get started. You can build your portfolio. You can increase your wealth and your cash flow. And then you can take information that they can get from, you know, people like yourself and your books and now start to multiply your returns. And, and really, that's what it's about. It's to you know increase those returns so you can get the lifestyle that you want out of the real estate because it's not about the real estate. It's about the freedom and the lifestyle that you want. <laughs> that's right. So, all right, let's wrap up with one question here. What are the biggest mistakes investors make with income property? One of the biggest I see is that they don't really do their due diligence, that they believe the information that they've been presented. To be more specific about that, I think what I've seen when I again interact with individuals on uh, discussion groups and whatnot, they'll have information that they've been given by a broker or an owner about a property. And they'll look at it and they'll confirm that all of the facts that they've been given are in fact accurate. Mm-hmm. But they don't look beyond what they've been told. For example, they don't look at the fact that, you know, trivial example, this property is in a uh, here where I live in New England. Okay. Well, I don't see any don't see any expense here for for snow removal. Yeah, well, not this year, but the previous year we had about four feet of snow here, and somebody had to pay to have that taken away. Mm-hmm. They don't look for the things that have been missing. Kind of related to that, and an item that I that I like to use with my grad students also is that they look at what the information says without really thinking about what does the information mean. And what I'm trying to convey by that is that they don't look at the story behind the story. They don't look behind the, I'm a numbers guy, obviously, but they don't look behind the numbers to see what information might be lurking there. The way I uh, I do this in my in my grad school class is I give them a, a mixed-use building where one of the commercial tenants on the first floor is on a fairly long-term lease, and it's a local bookstore. And I said, well, you know, we can run all these numbers but you know what? Given what's happening with mom and pop owned bookstores, do you really think you can rely on a 10-year projection based on the revenue from that business? Or do you have to think beyond that and say, maybe I need to make a secondary analysis of this property on the assumption that that business lease or no lease is not going to survive? Or they may not look at the fact that for a, a multifamily property, that a major employer is moving out of town? And are you going to project the fact that there may be a lot of vacancy as people leave town looking for jobs? So to look not just at what the facts are and what the numbers are, even if the numbers that are handed to you, current numbers, are accurate, but what is the story behind the story? What is the meaning behind the uh, the information you've been given? Or is there 
obvious information that is that is missing. Property management is another one of these uh, that I see a lot of times with beginning investors. They will look at a property and make no accommodation for the cost of property management because the previous owner hasn't volunteered anything about property management. And they'll say to me, well, you know, I'm going to manage the property myself. And I reply as politely as I possibly can, so your time has no value. What you need to do is when you estimate how good this property is going to perform, you need to plug in a number for the cost of property management, even if you do decide that initially you're going to try to do that yourself. Because the time you spend on that has a value. And that value should impact the value of the property. I mean, if you went out and bought stock in IBM, they're not going to expect you as, a, as an investor to come and, and clean the restrooms once a month for no compensation. So you shouldn't be expecting to, to have the property management in there at no compensation, even if you're the person who's doing it. So you need to look at what's missing from the information you're getting and what is behind the information you're getting. The two takeaways I'm getting from what you're saying is, number one, you need to be a detective on all the line items related to the property, both today and potentially what may be there in the future. And number two is you need to step back and look at the bigger picture, you know, using your example of the bookstore. Well, Amazon has already eliminated Borders books. They don't exist anymore. And who knows what's going to happen 10 years from now with Barnes & Noble. But the point is, is look at what's happening or potentially going to happen five, 10 years down the road to see if things are improving or getting better for you or worse. I mean, you've said that you said that so much more succinctly and clearly than I did. Thank you, Marco. <laughs> well, thank you, Frank. And on that note, you've been very, very generous with your time. We've gone over an hour here and I, I really do appreciate it. So do me a favor. Tell our listeners where they can find your books how they can get more information about your company. And also, I just found out last night that you have this new online course that to me sounds like your university education just on demand. Yeah, pretty much so. Yeah, if you go to learn.realdata.com, you'll get to our new e-learning platform. Just a couple months ago, we launched a fairly comprehensive course it's, it's got 34 videos and other resources and, and sample practice problems to work on and materials like that, even if a couple of, uh, you know, sample spreadsheets where you can do simple calculations, that sort of thing. But essentially what I do is convey a lot of the information that I convey in my uh, Columbia course, and I do a couple of case studies as an example. And that course, by the way, is going to grow with time. So anyone who is an enrollee, as you may want to call them, uh, will have access to the new lectures that I add to this course. And I do have new lectures planned in, uh, for example, in partnership analysis and uh, in development projects and so on. But you'll learn in that course, you'll learn starting right off from these four components of the income stream, going through discussion of these various metrics and how to use them, discussion of the APOD form, how to do the pro forma analysis, financing calculations, uh, different kinds of metrics and, and so on. And so I hope uh, we've made it uh, as as understandable as possible. And in regard to our software, the, the course was learn.realdata.com, but our software site is simply realdata.com. And you can find out a lot about the products that we've been selling for the last 30 some odd years and the analysis tools. And hopefully those will be uh, of value to, to some of your listeners. And our books are on Amazon. And that's probably the easiest place to, to find them. They, uh, McGraw-Hill does 
pop them up in bookstores from time to time, but certainly Amazon is a, a convenient place to look for them. Just search for them by my name, Gallinelli, and uh, there they'll be. Perfect. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. And like I said, I couldn't put the book down when I was uh, reading it. And so I highly, highly recommend you get a copy of this book on Amazon or wherever. It's well worth the read and it'll make you a much more efficient and intelligent investor. So Frank, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And um, we will certainly put this out here soon. And I look forward to having you again on the show. Marco, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a really been a pleasure, and I hope I've conveyed at least a nugget or two of useful information. It's been a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.